This idea is, is, is built on the notion that we can forgive on the one hand and still remember and, and hold on to an offense, kind of hold a grudge. In some ways, we're, we're trying to have our cake and eat it too. So on the one hand, we, deep down we know that uh, forgiveness or the offer of forgiveness is a, is a good thing. And it makes us seem like a good person. Uh, we can sort of take the high road and say, you know what? I've been offended in some way, but I'm going to take the high road and I'm going to at least say out loud that I'm forgiving. But on the inside, I want vindication. I want the justice that's, that's coming to me. So I'm going to hold on to that offense. I'm forgiving, but I'm just going to keep looking for an opportunity to, to bring up that offense, to hold it against that person. It feels good to do that sometimes. And yet, as Christians, we know that our lives are supposed to be guided by something else. Our lives are supposed to be guided by what God says, by who God is. Does God have anything to say about forgiveness and about that, that notion, that popular notion of forgiveness? This is the most important question we can ask. What does God think? That's the most important thing that we can ever ask. Why is it important that we understand relationships or understand forgiveness the way God understands forgiveness, the way that God forgives? Well, that's going to shape our relationship with God. That's going to shape our relationship with one another. It's going to shape how we respond when we're confronted with evil in our own hearts and in the world around us. What does forgiveness mean for the one who's been offended or for the one who offends, who's seeking forgiveness? What does that mean? Well, I think how we rightly approach the idea of forgiveness in light of God's ideal, in, in light of the ideal of God's justice. How do we do that? That's the question that we want to ask today. And so to, to look into that question deeper, we're going to turn to Psalm 32. Again, it's on page 462 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And we're going to read together here. This is God's word, Psalm 32. A mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, for it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord. And rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. 
And this is the word of the Lord. In this psalm, we see a few things to, to start out to, to kind of help us understand uh, the context and, and what it is that we're reading. Uh, in, the superscri- uh, in the superscription, the, the little words right there under the, the heading there, uh, we're told that this psalm was written by David, the, the, the king of Israel. He was the man of God's own choosing, okay? And so this psalm written by David was written for the people of God, written for Israel, okay? And, and the psalm was written to answer uh, a few very important questions, fundamental questions. Who is God and how should we worship him? So that's what Israel is concerned about when it comes to God. Who is he, and what is he like, and what does he demand from us? How are we supposed to approach this God? And so as we read this psalm, it's important for us to recognize that that was the audience, uh, the, the original audience, but to also know that this psalm was written for us to answer those very same questions. Who is this God that we talk about when we gather here together as a church? Who is God? What is he like? And how should we worship him? So, as we look at Psalm 32, I think we find three answers to these questions, and these are going to be our main points for today. So, uh, the, the three answers to who is God and, and how do we worship him. Uh, first, firstly, God forgives, okay? God forgives, and so our, our, our focus for uh, God forgiving is going to be uh, verses 1 through 5. That's going to be the focus there. And then secondly, we're going to see that God loves. God loves So our focus there is going to be verses 6 through 9. And then lastly, God satisfies. And our focus for for that is going to be verses 10 and 11. So let's go ahead and dive right in here to understand who God is and how we should worship him. Firstly, God forgives. God forgives. So let's look again at the psalm, verses 1 and 2. He says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. So the very first word of the, the psalm jumps out to us. It's the word blessed. That, that's a very well-known word for us Christians, right? When we see the word blessed, I mean, you know, how many, how many times have you seen that on, on a coffee mug or a throw pillow? I mean, I think we've probably got some at our house, right? Just some throw pillows that say blessed or a bumper sticker. It's a very common word for us to use. But do we really know what that word means? What does that word mean? And specifically, how is David using the word blessed here? Well, the term blessed, as, as David uses it here, I would argue, is he's talking about God's favor, okay? God puts his favor on, on a certain group of people, on, on his people. And this favor is undeserved. And, and what we'll see as we look at the, the whole Old Testament, I mean, we're not going to open and, and read the whole Old Testament, but uh, if we look at uh, the term blessed as we see it in, throughout uh, the, the, the testimony of God's word, uh, we see God blessing Adam and Eve from the very creation of the world. We see God blessing Noah. We see God blessing Abraham. We see God blessing his people, Israel, as, as a whole nation. And what we see there is that the experience of being blessed means that God gives enduring happiness to his people, an enduring sense of security and satisfaction in God's goodness. And that blessing, is, it remains, and it's, it remains steadfast regardless of, of changing emotions and circumstances. So then the next thing we want to think about then is, okay, well, then who is blessed? If that's what blessing means, according to David here, then who is blessed? Let's look again here at those first couple of verses. He says that, the, the one who is blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, 
the one whose sin is covered, and the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. So what we see here is that true happiness, security, and satisfaction are found only in being forgiven by God. Let me say that again. True happiness, security, and satisfaction are found only in being forgiven by God. So we need to dig it a little bit deeper to find out, well, how does God forgive? Namely, what does God's forgiveness look like? That's, that's what this psalm is about. David's going to unpack that for us. He's going to show us how God forgives, what his forgiveness looks like, and what that forgiveness means for the sinner. In these first couple of verses here, we see David use three different words. So, so in, our, in our Bible, we see three different words used for sin. And these are three different Hebrew words that, that, that David's going to use here, and they're translated in three different English words in, in our translations. Uh, he uses in verse 1 the word transgression. Also in verse 1, he, he talks about sin. In verse 2, he talks about iniquity. So what is he getting at when he uses these three different words? Well, transgression, the word transgression uh, refers specifically to rebellion. Uh, spe- you know, rebellion against God's law, rebellion against God's kingly authority. When, God, when, when David talks about sin, he's talking about someone who intentionally misses God's revealed will. So it's still an intentional missing of the mark that, that God has set in his law as, as the authoritative judge of all humanity. And then this word iniquity. There's this idea in Scripture of the straight path, and the iniquitous path is the crooked path. So that's what David's getting at here. It's a, it's a crooked act. It's a wrong act. God has very clearly and straightforwardly set forth what he, who he is and who, what he expects of us, and to live in iniquity is to make a, a sharp right or left turn from that. The point here is this, that, that sin, as David's describing it, is a, a deliberate action. It's a deliberate action, a deliberate decision to go our own way and to deviate from God's way, okay? But what we need to see about sin here, as David is, help, is describing it to us in the psalm, is that our sin is an offense against God himself. There's, there's all kinds of ways that we can sin against one another. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later. There's all kinds of ways that we can sin against governments or sin against uh, different uh, ethics, uh, ethical norms. But what God wants us to see here is that any sin ultimately is a sin against him. God's law reveals his character and man's obligations And when we sin, we put ourselves in the place of God. We say that we know better. God's authority and God's law, God's righteousness doesn't hold sway over us. We are the ones who determine our own destiny. So what does God do about sin then? If that sin uh, that we have in our hearts and the sins that we act upon, those are offenses against God, what does God do about it? Well, again, David helps us here in, in the, the first couple of verses. In the same way that he uses three different words about sin, he uses three different words to talk about God's forgiveness, okay? So three different words that give us a sense of, of exactly how God forgives. Uh, in verse 1, he says that um, our transgressions are forgiven. And so that word forgiven, uh, it, it brings to mind a, a removal of guilt and a removal of, of the remembrance of sin, okay? So sin isn't remembered, uh, he, he says that our, our sin is covered. Our sin is covered. So that word covered uh, uh, evokes uh, uh, 
ideas of atonement and the sinner being reconciled. So we're reconciled to God. And our sin is no longer grounds for, for God to uh, be displeased or angry with us. Okay, so his, God does away with his anger because our sins are, are covered and atoned for. And then in verse 2, he says that uh, God counts no iniquity to the sinner. Simply put, the, God treats the sinner as if he's never sinned. God treats us, as we talked about in, in Psalm 103, uh, not as our sins deserve. He treats us as if we had never sinned. Now, I want to step back for a moment and ask you, is this who you think, of, think about when you think of God? Is this the God you think about? Or do you think of God as one who says that he forgives, but he still keeps a detailed record of your sins? Maybe you think that God is still mad at me. I know that God is gracious. I know that God is merciful. I read it in my Bible. We've sung songs about it. I know that, and yet I know also that my sins are, are really bad. And God is still very upset with me. And he's constantly finding ways, little ways or big ways, to punish me for my sins. Things that I've thought, things that I've done, things that I'm doing right now, that are going on in my life. God's punishing me for that. That's why my life is so hard. Or do you think of God as one who expects you to, to do enough good things to, to make up for your sins, to cover your, your own sins? Is that the God that you're thinking of? Is that why you're here this morning? Because you think coming to church is a way for me to, to atone for my sins, to make up for the bad things that I've done. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning that God's forgiveness is completely by grace. It's a free gift. And that's not me saying that. That's, that's coming directly from our psalm right here. Human beings aren't even in a position to, to earn God's forgiveness. God takes the initiative himself to forgive. And when God forgives, he does away with our sin. He blots out our sin. He's no longer angry and just holding this grudge against us. So we've talked in the outset here about God's forgiveness and God's perspective. But what do humans have to do about all this? What's the human responsibility? Well, in the end of uh, the second half of verse 2 here, David helps us with that. So I'll read verse 2. He says, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So David talks about the spirit. So the spirit being our, our inner man. So this is an idea that you see in Scripture a lot, talking about our inner man, our heart, our mind, the things that we, the things that we think, the will, the, the things that we uh, will and, and intend to do. So David's zooming in on there, and he says that God forgives the one uh, whose spirit is, uh, he blesses the one whose spirit is, uh, has, has no deceit. So what is he talking about there? Well, he's just talked about sin and the way that God covers sin, the way God forgives sin. Now he's talking about our own attitude toward our sin, okay? So if, if you're somebody who has deceit in your spirit, well, that's somebody who's deceiving themselves about their own sin. Maybe you're deceiving yourself. Maybe you're deceiving others. Maybe you're even trying to, to deceive God, as if that's even possible. You know that, that you're a sinner, and yet you're not, you're not going to say a word about it. You're going to keep that to yourself, and you're going to live your life as if nothing's wrong. Well, the Bible has a word for that. It's called hypocrisy. 
And what David wants to show us here in this psalm, and what God wants to show us, is that there's a blessing for God's people, but only for those who are honest about their sin, who are able to be in a position where they're, they're honest about their sin and not deceiving. So David has, has introduced this idea of forgiveness, God's perspective and man's perspective, and now he's going to shift here, and he's going to talk to us about his own experience with his, with his sin. He's going to teach us from his own experience, and we're going to look here in verses 3, th- three through 5 about what happened in, in David's own life. So let's, let's read here. David says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So David first describes his initial response to his sin. He says that he did what? He kept silent. He deliberately tries to to downplay his sin. Okay, he sinned, and he's like, I'm not going to say a word about it. So in this scenario here, David is a deceiver. He just talked about the one in whose spirit there's, there's no deceit, but then he recounts his own experience. He says, I was once deceived about my own sin, and I was a deceiver about my own sin. And so what's the result here? In verse 3, he's in agony. He is in agony. His bones are wasting away from his groaning all day long. And in verse 4, he tells us who is responsible for that. It's God. It's God's discipline. In a sense, it's it's God's judgment on David for his sin. But we we see another wonderful thing here. That's not the end of of David's story there. In in verse 5, you see that, well, well, David gets another shot to respond. After he's suffered God's discipline, he's enlightened about his his own sin and God's holiness and the consequences of his own sin. And in verse 5, we see that David confesses his sin. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Whereas David initially hides his sin or attempts to hide his sin, he finally owns his sin and and brings it into the light by acknowledging it, by confessing it. And a wonderful thing to note here, uh, he also reiterates the, 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 the words, the three words that he used for sin, he reiterates those here. He, he talks about transgression and sin and iniquity. So David owns up to the fact that his rebellion is, is serious. It's an offense against God. And then he also reiterates those three words about God's forgiveness. Or he, he reiterates uh, the fact that God is the one who, who, he, who covers. He says that, I did not cover my iniquity. By saying that, essentially David's saying, God, I, I, I let you do the covering. I, I didn't try to cover my iniquity. And then the last statement he says there, he says, God forgave the iniquity of my sin. God released David from the guilt and punishment of his sins. We get a, a glimpse of this elsewhere in, in Psalm 51. If, if you'll recall, uh, David sins grievously where he commits adultery uh, uh, with another man's wife and sends that man off to battle to die, to be killed. So David is an adulterer and a murderer. And we see a glimpse of his repentance, his confession, and his forgiveness in Psalm 51. So if you have time this afternoon, I, I encourage you to read Psalm 51 and just be blessed by that. But you see, David has found that whereas he looked at confession 
as the thing that would rob his joy, confession was actually the means of his freedom. God used his confession to bring him to repentance. I love this quote by, by Charles Spurgeon where he talks about confession. He says, it does not spoil your happiness to confess. The unhappiness is not, sorry, the unhappiness is in not making the confession. I'll say that again because I butchered it so badly. He says, it is not spoil, it does not spoil your happiness to confess. The unhappiness is in not making the confession. So that's a very simple truth. He's saying, listen, I know it's hard, it's difficult, it's, it's painful to confess, it's embarrassing to confess, it's humiliating, but there's freedom in that, there's joy in that. And what we find here and throughout the whole testimony of God's word is that God's forgiveness is a free gift for those who confess. If you'll recall the, the verse that we read a little bit earlier in our service, 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10 are, are wonderful. That whole passage is wonderful. But I love 8 and 10, 8 through 10. It says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth of God is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So God knows who he is and who we are. And so when we pretend that we haven't sinned or that our sin is not that bad or that we can somehow make up for our sin, we're challenging God. We're challenging his truthfulness. And we're saying he's a liar. I, I, I don't want to do that. I certainly don't want to be in the position of calling God a liar. But that's what we do. And we need to understand who God is. We need to understand who we are. And we need to understand how we're reconciled to God. God is holy. God is perfect in all righteousness. He himself is perfectly good and great and without spot or without any kind of darkness. And he created us to love him and to have a relationship with him and to live in such a manner that, that points back to his, his glory, his goodness. And we have all failed to do that. As I said earlier uh, in our sermon here, we put ourselves in his place. We attempt to put ourselves on God's throne and to live our lives our own way, apart from him, apart from his good laws. God calls that sin. He considers that rebellion. He rightly considers that a challenge to his own authority. And because of that, we deserve his judgment. We deserve his wrath. And he is powerful. To, to, he's powerful enough to judge us, to judge all of us, to put an end to us all in the blink of an eye. And, in, and for him to do that would be perfectly just and righteous. And yet, yet, God's love for us is so marvelous, so great, that he sent his own son, Jesus, God incarnate, born in the flesh, to live a perfect life in obedience to God that, that none of us lived, and to die on the cross, a sinner's death, and to bear the wrath of God that we could never absorb. Jesus did that. He died a, a criminal's death. And then being buried... Three days, he rose from the dead. 
to show that death has no power over him. And he's ascended to God's right hand and intercedes for us. And he promises us life. He promises us forgiveness. He promises us reconciliation to God if we will just believe in him. If we will just be honest about our sin. If we will stop deceiving ourselves, deceiving others, trying to deceive God about our sins. And we will humbly believe in Jesus. So what's, what's your response this morning? Christian, non-Christian, whoever you may be, what is your response this morning? Will you continue to, to hide your sin, downplay your sin, try to atone for your own sin? Or will you trust in God's provision in Christ? That's the provision that we have every day. God calls us to repent and believe and have eternal life. And so that's our call for you this morning. Let it be today that you repent and believe. I love this verse from Colossians chapter 2. It says, And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over, triumphing over them in him. Jesus came and satisfied all of God's wrath. The record of debt that stood against us, God has set that aside. He's nailed it to the cross. So what I'm here to tell you today is that the wonderful news is that if you believe in Jesus, if you follow Christ by faith, God is no longer angry with you. He's no longer determined to, to, to judge you for your sin. But he is determined to love you as his own child. He's determined to reconcile you to himself as his own. And that actually brings us to our second point, God loves. So don't panic. That first point is, was by design our, our longest point of the day. We're not going to be here uh, until, until three. But we see that God loves, and the focus here is going to be verses six through nine. And what we see here, what David helps us to see, is that God is a loving, caring father who protects and teaches his children. Look here at verses 6 and 7. Therefore, let, anyone, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. What we see here is quite simply a call to seek God for protection. It's a call to seek God for deliverance. We're told that the godly are to offer prayer to God. So in other words, uh, those who love God and want to please him are called to seek him regularly in prayer. And so there's so many ways that we can pray. We, we try to model that every time we gather together as a church. Uh, we, we, you know, we pray, uh, pray to God in, pray, uh, in praise. We confess our sins to God. We thank God. We ask him for the things that we need. In all these ways, we are giving glory to God, and we are showing that he's the all-powerful, all-good, satisfying provider. And specifically here in the context of this psalm, this is a call to pray to God with an emphasis on repentance, an emphasis on recognizing that God 
is the, the savior. He's the protector. And in verse 6, we see this phrase, offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. God has made himself available right now. That's the implication of that. So why would we wait? Why would we wait to approach God in prayer? He's made himself available right now as our loving father. At the end of verse 6, we see this. He says, surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. This, this phrase, rush of great waters, that, that's, a, that's an interesting phrase for, for uh, the psalmist to just kind of throw in there. And you might be thinking, what is he, what is he talking about there? Like we were talking about God's, uh, God's forgiveness. We were talking about uh, repentance. And all of a sudden he just starts talking about, you know, you know, rush of great waters. What is that referring to? Um, well, that's an, that's an illustration uh, that's used throughout Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, uh, to talk about uh, dire threats, uh, some kind of dire threat to the individual or to the whole nation of God's people, okay? So it's something that is a, a threat of suffering or death uh, where you think, okay, there's no way out. There's nothing that I can do to save myself. In many places, this, this idea of rushing of great water uh, is pointing to God's judgment, okay? So God's judgment for sin. But here specifically, what, what David's trying to do, what David's trying to help us to see is that, um, you know, God saves us in ways that we can't save ourselves. So whatever trial, whatever suffering, whatever threat that you see in front of you, whatever you're going through right now or whatever you see on the horizon, that you think, there's nothing I can do about that. I am helpless. God saves us from that. God saves us. And so in verse 7, David makes that, that very point. He says, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Just as we sang that wonderful song, Rock of Ages, God is, is called a, a hiding place for us, a refuge, a shelter for us. Just think of that idea of a, a rushing flood coming, and God stands there, and he's, he's your shelter. He says, nothing's going to touch you because you're my child and I love you. And I've already bought and, and, and I've already paid for your sin and I've already reconciled you to myself. So there's nothing that's gonna, that's gonna harm you. So what we see is that God is a refuge for us and then we also see that God is our wisdom and we're, we're called to seek him for our wisdom. So in verse eight, the, the narration shifts and now God is the speaker and he says this in verse eight, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. So God pledges himself as the source of wisdom for his people. And so he uses this word way. He says, I will, uh, I will teach you, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. So this way, this word way, is, is really describing a path, just a road or a path of, of, of life. Which way is our life going to go? So it's helpful for us to think of it this way. You know, a lot of times when we think of God guiding us, when we seek God for guidance and we need answers and we're trying to, you know, you know discern God's will, a lot of times we think of it like a, like a GPS device, okay? So you're sitting in your car, your GPS is telling you turn by turn where to go, okay? Every decision that you need to make as a driver, your GPS says, okay, turn right at the next stoplight, you know, proceed one mile, you know, you, you, you get the idea. The GPS is telling you turn by turn where to go. But a lot of times... That's, that's not how, how God guides us in the sense of telling us exactly turn by turn every little decision we need to make, every practical decision we need to make. Instead, what God's word does for us, it acts more like a compass, okay? 
it tells us directionally there, there, there's a, a road that leads to death and there's a road that leads to life. I'm going to point you into the direction that leads to life. So I think that's helpful for us to, to set our expectations. You know, even when we don't necessarily know exactly what to do practically, there's all kinds of decisions and choices that we have to make. We may not know exactly which decision is the best decision, but we know what's right and what's wrong. And God tells us, here's what's going to please me and here's what's going to displease me. Here's what's going to lead to life. Here's what's going to lead to sorrow and destruction. So choose life. And so that's what we're called to here. I'm reminded of, of Psalm 1, verse 1, where we're told, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. See, God teaches us through his law. He gave his law to his people, Israel, and he has uh, shown us through Christ that, okay, the law, the, the demands of the law are all fulfilled in Jesus, such that we are no longer condemned by the law, but God continues to instruct us by the law. Jesus himself is, is the embodiment of all of God's promises in the law. And so when we follow Jesus, we get the, the perfect understanding of what it means to obey the law. But we continue to read God's word that he's given to us. And the Holy Spirit works in our hearts to illuminate the word of God for us, to help us to understand. And Jesus, remember, is, is sitting at the right hand of God the Father. He continues to intercede for us. This is wonderful news that everything that God demands for us, he has provided for us in Jesus, in his spirit. Finally, in, in this section here, we want to look at verse 9, because God has called us to wisdom, but he's also going to give us a warning. In verse 9, he says this, be not like a mule, or, sorry, a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. So, again, David gives us a wonderful illustration here that's, that's really helpful. He talks about a, a horse and a mule who stubbornly and, and stupidly, you know, resist and need to be forcibly restrained in order to comply. Well, that doesn't sound fun at all, does it? But for a lot of us, that's how we feel like the Christian life is. It feels like that sometimes, if we're, if we're honest. It feels like we're, we're just constantly pulling against God, and he's, he's pulling the other way, and we're fighting. Does that describe you this morning? Are you struggling against God? Are you like this horse or mule who is resisting God's loving care and needs to be forcibly restrained, forcibly redirected? Well, I want you to remember that, that God's discipline is actually a good thing. God's discipline is loving and, and it's helpful and it's caring even when it doesn't feel that way. Remember David's experience in verses three and four. But we also have this calling to not resist, to be those who willingly embrace the law of God, willingly embrace his love and care. And that's really the call of, of discipleship. That's, that's what we're called to. But through God's grace, he invites you to humbly follow him and he gives you all the resources you need. 
We've been saved in Christ, so we're no longer slaves to our sin. Uh, by, because of the word of God, we, we're no longer flying blind. God has given us clear instructions in his word. Because of the spirit, we're not doing this by our own strength. God comforts us and he strengthens us and he empowers us to trust him and to obey. Because of the gift of the church, the gift of the church, we're not alone. We're not fighting by ourselves, but we're holding hands together with other sinners who need help and need God's grace. And we're pushing toward that goal together. What a gracious, loving, merciful God to give us such resources. And so that's actually going to lead us to our third point, our third point here, that God satisfies. It's going to be verses 10 and 11. What we see here is that God, the forgiver, and the loving Father is himself the substance of our enduring happiness, security, and satisfaction. Let's read verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. God invites his people to a life of joy as we repent from our sins and seek refuge in him. We see here in verse 10 that uh, just as he warned us in verse 9 not to be stubborn and stupid, he's also going to give a warning. But this warning in verse 10 is going to be a warning to those who stubbornly and stupidly reject God, those who don't believe, those who are wicked, those who continue to rebel and challenge God's authority. What does he say here? He says that they're going to have many sorrows. The idea here is that there's judgment awaiting. That, that's a, a life that leads to death and destruction. So if you're sitting here thinking, okay, well, that, that certainly doesn't seem that way. I mean, I know a lot of wicked people who seem like they're doing great right now. They're doing great. They're, doing, they're, they're just fine. They don't need God. But the sobering news that we have here and in all of God's word is that even if we don't see that with our eyes right now, judgment is coming. And at some point, time will run out. We don't know when that day is, but at some point, Jesus will come back and he will return as judge. And he will separate the sheep who follow him willingly and the goats who run away from him and, and rebel against his authority. Well, who, who do we want to be? We want to be those sheep who are gathered by the shepherd into his fold. That's who we want to be. And so the promise that we have here in verse 10 is this. Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Those who humbly, honestly trust and obey God will be forever loved as his own children. So as we talked about earlier, there, are, there really are two ways to live. There's the way that leads to shame and death, and there's the way that leads to joy and life. In verse 11, we again see this invitation. Based on all of this, we see this invitation to delight in God. God invites his people to delight in him. Look at the way he addresses his people he says, O oh, righteous, all you upright in heart, 
In Christ, God has removed the, the penalty of our sin. And he's declared us righteous and blameless. You see, the, the heart of the Christian life isn't rules and rituals and just things that we need to do, but it's joy. It's finding our deepest joy, our most life-shaping joy, in God himself above all things. So it's finding joy in God more than our spouse, our kids, our career, our health, our relationships, our house, our bank account, our ministry, our spiritual gifts, and any other host of, of, of good gifts that God has given us. Those are all good things. Nothing that I just listed is a bad thing. But if we're putting our hope and our trust and our joy in those things, we're, we're missing the greatest joy. I love here what, what John Piper has to say about joy. He says that the apex of glorifying God is enjoying him with the heart. But this is empty emotionalism if that joy is not awakened and sustained by true views of God for who he really is. My prayer is that God would awaken joy in us, in him. And the joy of Psalm 32 is that God graciously forgives sinners who repent and he loves us with a perfectly fatherly love that only he can provide. So what I want to do at, as we conclude, I want to briefly give three points of application. Three, three points of application to, to think through all of this and, and sort of what we should take away from this. And specifically, I want to ask the question, how can we bake these truths into the life of our church? Okay, So our life together as a church family, as God has called us to be a church family, how can we bake this into the life of our church? Well, number one, I think we should build a culture of confession and repentance. We need to build a culture of confession and repentance. Confession is uh, necessary and foundational for a right relationship with the Holy God. And in the church, we, our aim is to testify truthfully about God, about the problems of mankind and, and the solution to be found in Christ. So in order to do so, we must be a people who are honest about sin, about our sin, about the sin of the world, and honest about the fact that God is the only one who can himself solve that problem, who can himself atone for that sin, and Jesus has come to atone for that sin. Our message and our mission rise and fall by whether or not we are going to be honest about our sin. So if you remember in, in 1 John chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 10, uh, we saw that a failure to confess is essentially calling God a liar. So I want you to think now, what is the greatest threat to the church? We talk a lot lately about, you know, threats to the church. What is the greatest threat? If I were to ask you that question, what's the greatest threat to the church? Well, I would submit to you that the greatest threat to our, to our church is not a hostile culture. It's not persecution. It's not legal or political threats. It's not a lack of money or resources. No, the, the greatest threat to our church is a failure to faithfully proclaim the gospel. And one dangerous way that we can fail to proclaim the gospel faithfully and truthfully is a failure to be a culture of confession 
and repentance. So remember, our, our nature is to confess or is to, is to hide. We want to cover our own sins. So we saw that word cover in, in, in verse 5 where, you know, David said, I didn't cover my own sins. But our nature is to do what he did, was, which, is, which was to what? Cover his sin initially. And so what are the ways that we cover our sin? First, we, we keep quiet about our sins. We say, I'm, I'm just not going to say a word. I'm not, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep quiet about it to save myself from any embarrassment. And what happens then is we've run into a problem where we're living a double life. We've got our secret sins over here that we cherish in this public life that we have. We're, we're kind of putting our best foot forward. So there's a double life of hypocrisy. Secondly, we, we minimize our, our sin. And a lot of times, the way this looks is through, through half confessions, okay? So we'll confess our sin, but we're going to kind of like, we're, we're going to neaten it up a little bit. We're going to make it so that, oh, it's, it's not as really bad. It's not really as bad as the problem actually is. And so we, we make it seem like we're, we're doing okay. And, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm having some, some struggles. And, you know, it's, 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 it's a little bit difficult when really things are awful. And we need help. Third, the third way that we cover our sins or seek to cover our own sins is we try to just work. We try to work and just atone for our sins and just cover it that way by like, you know what? If I'm a good enough person, maybe people will see my sins, but they'll also see, you know, what a, what a good guy I am. And that will outweigh the bad. And that's what I'm trying to do with God. And that's what I'm trying to do with people around me. Folks, what we need to do, brothers and sisters, we need to reject that idea. We need to reject that attempt to cover our sins. And we need to seek to build a culture where we are honest and open about our sins. Remembering that God already knows our sins. And he invites us. And he calls us. And he commands us to be honest about our sins. And to seek forgiveness in him. A couple ways that you can think through this this afternoon Maybe ask yourself the question, what are some ways that I tend to try to cover my own sins? And if you don't know the answer to that, especially those of you who are married, ask your spouse. I bet they've got some ideas on that, all right? I bet they can give you some helpful ideas of how you might be, how you might tend to cover your own sins. So Franconia Baptist Church, I know we've said this several times, Franconia Baptist Church is only for sinners. It's only for sinners, but it's for sinners who repent and turn to Christ by faith. Uh, briefly, number two here, we want to build uh, not only a culture of, of confession and repentance, but a, a culture of forgiveness and restoration, okay? Forgiveness and restoration. Each of us, uh, we're called to confess to one another, and so we need to also be eager to forgive and restore one another. Ephesians 4, uh, uh, verse 32 says, uh, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So we've received the mercy of, 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 and forgiveness in Christ, and we need to give that mercy and forgiveness to others because it, it, it testifies to the awesome power of the gospel. But I don't want us to, to miss the fact that forgiveness is costly. So if you'll recall that, you know, that, that idea of forgiveness we talked about in, in the very beginning of our, of, our, uh, of our time, where we had this idea of, I can forgive, but I, I, I don't want to forget. I don't want to put aside that sin. I want to hold on to it. What we're called to do is to forgive the way that God forgives. And the way that God forgives is he blots out our sin. He forgives our sin. And he restores us to relationship. 
And so that's the way that we need to treat one another. When there's repentance, when there's confession, we need to be ready and eager to forgive. Of course, that doesn't mean that there's no consequences for sin. Sometimes, uh, you know, sin can be a a disqualifier for, for leadership. So for elders or deacons, certain kinds of sin can be disqualifying. So while we could forgive somebody, we could say, you're, you're no longer qualified to be a leader. And that's a sad, grievous thing. And yet we know that we can forgive and we can also say there's consequences. And in the same way, in, in just interpersonal conflict, sometimes trust. Trust is something that takes a long time to, to rebuild. And the relationship might not quite be the same way that it, ever, that, that it was before. But we can still live with one another in such a way that I'm no longer holding that sin against you. I'm not wishing you ill. I'm praying for you. And I can say that, you know, in Christ, I love you. And I, I, I pray that, that uh, God will continue to give you grace as his own child. You, we are reconciled together as a family. So we want to be a family that celebrates God's mercy and forgiveness in the lives of sinners who repent. Lastly, we want to be a culture of joy-filled discipleship. So our highest calling as Christians is the call to delight in God. That's our call, our call to delight in God. So every virtue of the Christian life flows out of delight for God. So essentially Christian discipleship is learning to delight in God more and more each day and bringing others along with us. That's what we're here to do. We're here to learn to delight in God more and more and bring each other along. And that's that's that term, joy-filled discipleship. That's what that means. So the ways that we build a joy-filled culture, or a culture of joy-filled discipleship, well, we celebrate moments of repentance and restoration and growth. Look for those evidences of grace in one another and celebrate them and make it known that's what we're about as a church. We're about recognizing our sin openly and recognizing God's mercy to us. But the other thing that we want to do, we just want to preach the gospel every day. We never move on from the gospel. The gospel is not the, uh, I, this is what, I, I, I've heard Tim Keller say this before, and it's, it's stuck with me. He says, the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life. The, the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. Every day, we need to preach the gospel to ourselves, to our spouse, to our children, to members of our church, to our neighbors, to our coworkers. Look for opportunities to just talk about Jesus to just talk about the grace and mercy of God in Christ. As we conclude, just think about this. God is a God who forgives, loves, and satisfies, and he's done it all through the finished work of Christ. So as gospel people, we're people who embrace forgiveness God's way. We honestly and fully confess our sin and turn to Christ by faith. We forgive others just as God in Christ has forgiven us. And we joyfully trust our all-satisfying God in all things. Let's pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks and praise for your grace and mercy to us. Lord, thank you for being the God who forgives. Oh God, we confess that in our own hearts, we are those who are often tempted to minimize, to hide, or to atone for our own sin. 
And yet, God, you call us to something much greater than that. You call us to your grace, your mercy in Christ. And so, Father, we want to be those people who always have Jesus in our hearts and on our lips because that's our salvation. That's our hope. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ways that you continue to love us. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. So, brothers and sisters, as we conclude our time today, we want to think about God's love and mercy in Christ and continue to celebrate that. So if you're able, please stand with us as we sing our concluding hymn.
Now receive the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Please be seated for a